You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. Being able to pay a certain type of attention requires time and Mm. it's obviously helped by having more control over your time or how time feels. But then at the same time, yeah, paying a certain type of attention makes time feel different. It's a very full house. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to the Wheeler Centre. Welcome to this event, Saving Time, with Jenny O'Dell. Um, this is an event presented by the Wheeler Centre as part of the World of Words series, which is supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging that this land that we're meeting on this evening is Wurundjeri Woiwurrung land of the Kulin Nation the sovereignty of which was never ceded. There's a rich and long history of storytelling and timekeeping practices on these lands. And these have survived the violence of dispossession, which is a violence that is ongoing and unresolved. I pay my respect to elders past and present and to any First Nations people with us here tonight. My name is Fiona Wright. I'm a poet and an essayist um, and a critic from Gadigal and Darawa land in Sydney which is why I forgot to wear black. Although, (laughs) to be fair, I think we've got a little bit of black going on there. (laughs) And I'm speaking today with with Jenny O'Dell, who, you know, I'm sure needs no introduction, but just in case. Um, Jenny's a multidisciplinary artist and a writer. She's the author of How to Do Nothing, which came out in 2019, and this new work, Saving Time, which obviously, you know, we were joking backstage, obviously I hated it. (laughs) didn't find anything interesting in there at all. Um, The good news is you can purchase it tonight, up the back, um, thanks to Sun Bookshop. So that's the official stuff. (laughs) Jenny, I wanted to to start by asking, um, I was thinking about this book in in terms, sort of in relationship to How to Do Nothing, which which is a book about attention in many ways. And it seems to me that that this relationship between time and attention is, is a really tightly knit and deeply linked one, so that it's almost a natural progression. Is, is, is that your sense of things too? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, I mean, I was recently looking at journals from when I was writing How to Do Nothing, which was would have been in 2018, and realizing that a lot of the things that I cite in this book, I actually was reading at that time. So it's almost like it kind of you know grew out of the writing mm. of, of How to Do Nothing. Um, and then I think there's just kind of already, if you've read How to Do Nothing, there's an implicit argument that not all time should, it would be great if not all time felt like money. And there's also something about attention span, right? Like, yep. um, I think a lot of How to Do Nothing was motivated by me trying to find something beyond the kind of like tiny loop, like anxiety loop of scrolling um, and kind of grabbing onto these larger rhythms like, you know, the atmospheric river or like, you know, historical context for things that I was experiencing, just something that feels longer. So I think there was already a lot of concerns about time in, in How to Do Nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, they're sort of linked in that sense that the more, the more keenly focused your attention is, the, it affects your kind of perception of time. Yeah, I think it kind of goes both ways too. Like obviously, and it's just something that I I heard a lot from readers after How to Do Nothing came out. Like being able to pay a certain type of attention requires time and Mm. it's obviously helped by having more control over your time or how time feels. But then at the same time, yeah, paying a certain type of attention makes time feel different. Yeah. Like I, you know, I've been... (laughs) This is, I don't know what day this is of my trip, but you know, I'm from California and everything is very different. Um, and I've been to Brisbane and Auckland at this point and the days feel so dense because there's nothing that I can take for granted. Like yep. I feel like time goes by really quickly when you are taking things for granted. Like you're walking on the route that you think you know everything on so it doesn't really register for you. So then when you travel, like everything is registering for you and time feels really, really weird. And you have that sharpening of attention too when you're in a new environment. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it made me think too of, of there was a, there's a phrase that comes up a lot in in how to do nothing that that is about being fully alive or, or being fully human, which is which you also talk about as a as a, as a deep engagement in in time and place. Um, that that it feels like so much of this book is is trying to understand what that engagement with time would be like and feel like. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a phrase that I use in this book. Um, unfreezing something in time, mm. 
which the example that I give is of a single branch of a buckeye tree, a California buckeye tree, which is in a park that I walked past or walked through probably hundreds of times during the pandemic. It's, it was like the place where I went on my walk. And I chose, I chose that branch as sort of like a constant um, to pay attention to all year, actually probably more than a year at this point. Um, because buckeye trees have, they go dormant for a large part of the year. They're kind of just like off, temporarily speaking, from other trees around them. And then in the spring, things happen really fast with them. Like, you know, uh, you come back the next day and it's different. Um, and they, I mentioned that those flowers are my favorite smell of all smells. So I spend all year waiting for it. And, um, I'm a little bit worried that I'm missing out on it right now because, <laughs> um, right before I left the first flower had opened. Um, and I was like, no, please wait for me. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's kind of, you know, like unfreezing something on time is basically pay, like picking that point, like a, a point in space or an entity or something like that and making the decision to pay attention to it because doing so will inevitably make you see changes in that thing. And that change is often um, a record of the aliveness of that thing. Um, mm. and, and it's a very different way of thinking about something like a tree than as like a, you know, a resource or something that's kind of like, it's alive, but not really. Yeah, it, it's there and it changes and mm. it lives and it grows. And um, I read this wonderful definition of time that, you know, <laughs> because no one can agree what it is, um, that the best scientists have been able to come up with is time is change. And sometimes they add, in a particular order. <laughs> and that's the closest they can get to agreement. Um, so yeah. it feels like that's a really kind of um, wonderful way to work with that particular... <laughs> yeah. No, I think... And I mean, that, that's kind of the conclusion that I came to after spending that much time thinking mm -hmm. about time. Is like, I think it's just... It's just change and it and sort of pro, like processes that set off other processes. Like, I mean, I like on this trip, like my body is so confused <laughs> right now, like about like what, like everything is different and then it's fall here. So like that is really strange for my brain, but it's like just, you know, I was like walking around a park earlier and looking at the fall leaves and just thinking about how it really, it it really is that. Like, you go to a place and there are just things happening that are causing other things to happen. I mean, this even happened with my my branch that I was paying attention to. I would see it starting to go yellow, like, in the midsummer, basically. Um, but even that's uneven. It's not like mm -hmm. the whole tree is uniformly aging or, or, you know, going into dormancy. It's kind of spreading across a single leaf. So it's really, um, I don't know, it's... It's so, to me, that is so the opposite of the idea of, like, standard abstract time. Yeah. Mm. Um, I wanted to talk to you a bit about this idea of abstract and standard time. I think you talk about it a lot as fungible time, mm -hmm. which is such a fun concept and such a, um, such a useful one, I think. Can you, can you kind of talk a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So fungible, I, I use that term and other actually... In its proper know. meaning, not in its tech meaning. Oh, yeah, I know. So I, I, um, I realized that I couldn't say non-fungible time because it's <laughs> NFT, but... Um, so fungible, you know, fungible just means, like, you know, uh, uh, interchangeable, right? Like uh, currency. Um, and so fungible time is the sense of time where, like, a... Like a man hour to me would be like the ultimate mm -mm. expression of fungible time. It's an it's an hour is like an hour is an hour is an hour. It doesn't matter where it is. Doesn't matter what order it happened in. Um, it's exchangeable with all other hours. Um, and even though even like just describing that right, like that sounds so um, unintuitive. Like that's not how we experience time, and yet it's extremely ingrained. I think in a lot of us in, in terms of thinking what time is. Like, if you try to tell someone that there's no such thing as minutes and hours, there's actually a lot of resistance to that, <laughs> you know? But, um, but it's like, no, minutes and hours, like, that's a language and a, and a system of measurement, and it's an agreement. It's a social agreement about, you know, these systems. But, um, you know, there's no natural basis for a week, for example, a seven-day week, as opposed to something like a month, like a lunar month or, or a solar year. Um, so yeah, fungible time is that kind of like, I, I think of it often as being empty also, or it's, it's empty and it's there to be filled with work is, is yeah. how I think of fungible time. 
And you relate it to that wonderful meme about everybody has the same number of hours in a day as Beyonce. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like I didn't actually mention that phrase because it's like I assumed that someone would <laughs> think of that already when they mentioned that. But, but yeah, that concept of everyone having 24 hours in a day, it's like it just gets funnier to me like the more I think about it. Like, like I have my little box of hours that gets refilled every day and you have your box of hours. And it's like, like the, it just falls apart so quickly. It's like, well, where are you? Like, do you have access? Is someone helping you? Like, yeah. um, and then like, even just on a purely psychological level, like time feels different moment to moment. So um, yeah, but it's, but, but that notion of everyone having 24 hours in the day, in a day is still, it's still in like, I found it in pretty contemporary time management books. Like it's obviously in older ones, but it's, it's in contemporary ones as well. And it's sort of like, you, um, I, I mentioned that in a chapter of the book that comes after um, the kind of history of industrial time, and I was struck by how similar the language is. Where now in personal time management, like you are both the factory and the factory manager, and your 24 hours are the material that you're meant to squeeze for value. And you have to optimize them, yeah, because you know if it's not productive time, then what are you doing with your time? Yeah. It's a crazy idea. Yeah, and it's also very cruel. Like, mm. um, it doesn't make... Like, I always found it kind of entertaining to look at time management books and try to find any kind of acknowledgement or mention of anything peripheral or anything contextual about the person. <laughs> women. Like, your, yeah, women, <laughs> women or, like, your job, right? Like, I was trying to look for a mention of, like, your job somewhere in there, you know? Like, who is your boss? And, like, the only one that I could find was... Uh, like it's this time management book from the eighties where they they have this imagined Q and A with a reader, and the reader is like, um, "You're telling me to protect my time, but they won't let me." <laughs> it's like they, and like, and then the answer is like, "Well, you just need to tell them to back off." You know, it's like, "Who's them?" <laughs> you know, I'm like, "Are you? Is this about unionizing?" Like, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's very cruel and it's especially cruel to women. Like one of the the people that I interviewed in the book is a woman who's a Facebook the admin for a Facebook group for working moms, and mm. and I just wanted to ask her like how she felt about this kind of time management advice. Like, does it bother you? And she was like, Yeah, it really reminds me of that financial advice to just not buy that latte. <laughs> um, which is, maybe that's in, different in, here because lattes are way better here. In this country, <laughs> it's avocado yeah. toast. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. what's bringing us all down. It's yeah. the avocado yeah, yeah, yeah. toast. Just, yeah. Too much on breakfast. Yeah, you just got to rein in that temptation. <laughs> but yeah, um, and then she you know, went on to say that she thought it would be more helpful if she would get six other moms together and each one of them would make dinner for everyone else one night of the week. So like she already was making that acknowledgement of you know, thinking beyond the individual with their 24 hours that, um, that actually for more people to have more control over their time or feel like they had more time, you would naturally need to move away from that individualistic way of thinking about time. Mm -mm. Which is very much how childcare would have been managed in the past too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, I, I liked the, there was a sort of related idea where you talk about people whose time is stolen or time, time theft or, or people whose time doesn't exist within history as a, as mm. a way of problematizing this idea of standardized time. Yeah, yeah, there's some really... Uh, I also, I will mention while we're on this subject that the first half of this book is a little depressing, but you should hang in there because it, <laughs> it, gets, it gets better. Um, but yeah, what there was, um, there's a part where I'm talking about this amazing book called The Colonization of Time, um, which is about uh, the kind of British export of a certain way of thinking about time. And it's, it's so ironic, actually, um, that they would... Like I, that book talks about um, Australian and South African colonies specifically, mm. but um, you know, like people showing up and not only like like thinking that a modern sense of time is one that's divorced from natural cues, um, but also just being completely insensitive to all of the ways that the people who are living there have exquisite timing, like like are ex extremely attuned to when things happen yeah. and then timing one's activities in the most, you know, uh, in the way that makes the most sense. Um, and so it's like the result is that they show up and they see, they perceive timeless people. And there's this amazing quote where it's, um, sort of, I think it's like a, a colonist's daughter who's like writing home to the UK and it's like, um, we didn't have our 
maybe maybe she sent for their clocks or their watches or something, but she's like, we haven't had clocks until today. And before this, we were launched into eternity. <laughs> um, so like that kind of gives you some sense of like what they were perceiving when they looked around, which is like t- time, like a timeless people who mm-hmm. not only, they, they couldn't understand how timekeeping was done, but they also saw them as kind of not being on the historical timeline. And that this idea of timelessness has been a hugely, um, it's been one of the weapons. Yeah, it's dehumanizing. To, yeah. 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 Yeah, and there's a wonderful, wonderful story in here too about a, um, a, a town in the central desert where the clock oh. had been broken for something yeah. like 40 years and everyone was just like, oh, we don't, yeah. we don't use it, so yeah. no one's fixed it. <laughs> yeah, it's in that same book. So it's in an Australian town yeah. um, that is, has mostly... I think it's in Kitchenjara country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, they, this is more recent than most of the stuff he talks about in the book, but they erect... Uh, a digital clock tower that no one looks at and then it, it actually, it's actually been broken for a long time but no one noticed because no one was looking at the clock <laughs> and then someone who lives there was like I actually think that tower was a waste of time which <laughs> <laughs> is beautifully yeah. beautifully encapsulates so much <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a little bit too that one of, one of the things that I think is, is really interesting um, on a technical level in the book too, is that alongside these passages where you're thinking through all of these, you know, big and, and complicated um, ideas and worldly ideas and historical ideas, you, you sort of intersperse it with a walk or several walks at the beginning of each chapters that that really are so, um, they kind of have a lovely, they break it up on the one hand, but, but also give this sort of example of what this more grounded time might look like and, and what that might mean that it feels like there's a real physicality to yeah. that that is that is so important for the craft of the book yeah yeah that's um something that I actually hadn't planned to do at the outset um and then the idea kind of it it came to me uh three things happened at the same time when in the middle of when I was writing the book one was that I read Sand Talk by Tyson Yunkaporta um and was really inspired by the parts that are in that are written in second person mm. like addressing you directly um, and then I, I went to my favorite place in the Santa Cruz mountains, which is kind of like my, that's my, that's my place. That's what I get homesick for. Um, and I was walking around a very small town with my friend who's in his seventies and has lived there for 50 years. Oh, wow. And as we were walking around the town, it was a mix of him pointing things out to me and telling me things from his memory. And when I wanted to remember those things later, I just went on the walk again in my head. And then the third thing that happened was that I played Zelda. <laughs> Um, Breath of the Wild um, and I was not allowed to play video games as a child so this is kind of like my first video game like one of the best video games ever made was my first (laughs) video game and if anyone here uh, I mean there's many games like this but specifically if you played Zelda you know that just different parts of the story happen in different places and there's a fair amount of like foreshadowing like someone tells you you're going to have this crazy battle on that mountain over there and you can see it um, but you can't get there. It's kind of like Canberra. You've got to drive in circles <laughs> for a bit before you can. Yeah. Um, and so all those things kind of like congealed in a, a weird and unexpected way. And I, um, and so I decided to structure the book where each chapter is take each chapter takes place in a different location in the Bay Area. It has. It's basically like a Joycean day. Like it's one one day. Um, and I, there are these italicized paragraphs where I'm, I'm addressing you directly. We are in my 2003 Corolla from high school, which is still my car. Um, and, uh, it starts in Oakland at at the port of Oakland, which, uh, interesting detail is that's where how to do nothing ends. It ends at that shoreline park, which is part of the port. So you start there. You go, uh, you learn about industrial time. Uh, then there's like time management chapters in a traffic jam on Interstate 880, which is our most hated freeway. Which um, I thought was a beautiful moment. Just like, yep, yeah, we're in the car. Yep. <laughs> we yeah. are in the car. Yeah, and it's like, because like, chapters, a lot of it's about time is like, um, you know, the 24 hour, everyone has 24 hours is like being a zero sum game. And like when you're in a traffic mm. jam, someone else gets ahead of you, you are gonna, <laughs> you're further behind. Um, and then, yeah, so the chapters kind of proceed outward towards the coast, which is like the geological time bit. And then they, you turn around and you come back. So you end at the cemetery in Oakland. So I really wanted it to be a loop because I really, um, I think that in itself is an expression of time when you come back to a place and it's the same, but you're not the same. And actually the place is not the same. And you've learned something like learning as an expression of 
not sorry, non-fungible time um, that you like you have grown as a person. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's it has this sort of really wonderful sense of being in place too, which which feels like a real grounding of of these big ideas as well. And and to me, I, there was this. It's I liked it the most too in the section that you were talking about where you end up in geological time and talking a bit about those ideas about deep time and that sense of scale. Yeah. On. Yeah. There's a really incredible beach also like, you know, not 880, but a lot of the places in the book are places that are really personally important to mm. me. So, um, that beach is not far from one that I was taken to like as a baby. And, um, it's very geologically interesting and there's basically a bunch of layers of, um, sandstone that have, that are super, I mean, they're old for California. <laughs> um, and they've been turned sideways, so you can see them. And, and so actually walking across the beach is like walking across time, if that makes sense. And, uh, and then there's also these pebbles on that beach that are super old. Uh, they're like seafloor from the Pleistocene. And so, um, and so I have, in the middle of the page, there's basically like an image of, because there's, there's also photographs and images in the book, of these pebbles, but they they actually just happen in the middle of the text, almost like they are text. And it's me, you know, in the sort of italicized paragraph addressing you directly, like basically saying, like, look, look at those rocks, you know, um, those are not symbols of time; those are time. Like those are time mm. concretized. Like you can't. Um, I know this now as someone who's got. I'm very amateur level, but I'm very into geology. And when you look up what the identity of a rock is. It's just a story of what happened to it. There is no other description of a rock. It's just, it was, you know, it came out, out of a volcano and then it was underwater and then it reacted with this, but like that is the description of any rock. Mm -mm. But it's this wonderful moment of, of real awe and scale too, that you're like, here is this rock from, you know, the Pleistocene. Mm, yeah. Don't speak Latin, obviously. <laughs> terrible. And, and here, is, here is me. Yeah. And we both... We're, I am also here. <laughs> yeah, how, how could we both exist in these timescales in this place now? This is magical. Yeah. And we don't stop to think about this. It, yeah. Um, and I, I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe it's easier. I, I don't know. I was thinking about this because I, um, when I was in Auckland, I took the ferry out to that island. There's like a volcanic island. And I was wondering if like maybe it makes a difference if you live somewhere where you're in contact with or you're closer to things like that um, and you maybe mm -hmm. think about it more versus like living somewhere where you don't have as much access or you know living in a city where, where those things are, are smoothed away and especially in cities where things are knocked down and rebuilt yeah all the time because I find I, interesting. Know, I find that people like um, there's this there's this bit of the book where I'm quoting an American indigenous writer who's written about a very logical argument about why rocks are alive and certain, I find that certain people in the U.S. have a really hard time with this idea, and they don't want to talk about it. Like, they they will. I will have like a whole interview where we'll like not touch the rocks are alive part. And then when I was in New Zealand, like all people in the signing line were like, "Oh yeah, rocks are alive." Like I get it. Or they were like, "Tell me what that paper was." Like they were super willing to engage with this idea. Well, you know? I think that means we have to talk about why rocks are alive, Jenny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So uh, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah. No. So there's this really amazing paper by um, this writer, George Tinker, um, called "The Stones Shall Cry Out." It's an amazing paper, and he um, kind of just talks about like um, it's you know, the arrogance of thinking that we even, we don't, we can't, we can't describe what consciousness is. So why mm. would we be so sure that certain things are conscious and other things aren't? But I feel like his writing is also really indicative of like a, a view that I have, you know, I cite other sources as well that um, where aliveness is not defined by, um, you know, the ability to reproduce, for example, or consume things, but rather um, it's just something that is affecting change in an environment. And, you know, if you, like, look at, if you really try to find the boundary between living and non-living, like, on a really granular level, like, I'm thinking maybe, like, tree roots and minerals and a rock or something like that, it's actually quite fuzzy, that yeah. line. Um, and everything is so constantly affecting other things or being incorporated into other things that it's not actually that hard of a concept, in my opinion. And, and when I was thinking about that a lot when I was on that island, which is, like, the volcanic rock is so um, young, like, it looks like it's still almost still lava, you know, mm -hmm. which is obviously something that's very dynamic and then moving, right? So um, I don't think it's that hard of a concept, but <laughs> but I think uh, I think 
I think it might be especially hard for, you know, not uh, for a mindset that is uh, very, um, you know, like in How to Do Nothing, I talk about I, it versus I, yeah. thou, which is that concept from Martin Buber, where um, the I, it mindset kind of sees everything in a very instrumental way. Like it's either um, a product that you're going to buy or it's a nuisance, or it doesn't exist at all. Like everything is there for you to either consume or not relate to versus I, thou, which is that other things outside of you have their own reality, have their own time. Um, and that it's, a, there's like a mutuality between you and that thing. And I feel like that's, it's easier for someone in that mindset to think that rocks might be alive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I totally agree. Um, can we move from rocks to capitalism? because <laughs> yeah. you know it turns out like capital it was capitalism's fault all along um <laughs> there's, it, i mean it's very much at the heart of the idea of, of fungible time too and and how um inextricably connected our our sense of time with minutes and hours and and sellable labor yeah are to to the whole capitalist system that so much so that we don't see it yeah, I, I really enjoyed how much. I really enjoyed how much burning the rich there is in the book. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so that's in the depressing part of the book. Um, it's not depressing. It's yeah, fun. It's yeah. Um, I I yeah. I mean, there was. Um, I, it's sort of like what you. I feel like there is these things that you sort of would intuit or you sort of know, but you know, like obviously the phrase "time is money" has to do with wage labor like one would suppose that but when you actually like go and sort of look at the history and those moments in which it something was not taken for granted um for example there's a book by caitlin rosenthal called accounting for slavery where she talks about the fact that some of the first documents that we would refer to as spreadsheets were used um were on plantations to record labor of enslaved people um and that's like, you know, I think it wasn't until I encountered that that I really thought about, um, you know, not only the fact that the idea of something like fungible time is historically specific, but why? Why does it exist? Mm -hmm. And if, I mean, if you go, like, even further past that, like, humans have always needed ways to measure time and mark time and reckon time, like, and the system that you get at any particular time or in any particular place, it, it reflects just what people thought they needed to do. Um, there isn't anything... Uh, you know, like it, it's, it is only that. And so I feel like you see in that history that there was a specific historical moment in which one group of people who I think importantly, you know, she mentions in that book were often absentee plantation owners. Yeah. So they were overseas, um, needed to count up and measure the labor days of, of peop other people as commodities. Um, and that's how you get the kind of science of productivity tracking, you know? And, and she mentions in the book that like management science, current management science has a really uncomfortable relationship yeah. to this history. Um, and then of course, after that you have, uh, you know, the, this weird moment, at least in US history, where people actually really didn't want to work for a wage. They thought they would, they called it wage slavery. They, it was considered undignified. And so there's this, also that very specific history of like all the things that had to be done to get people to obediently show up at the factory and sell their time because they had nothing else to sell. And you, you have some wonderful um, images in there too from the oh factory magazine the factory yeah. magazine oh it's brilliant <laughs> yeah yeah I so um, yeah I got a lot of my material from this amazing community library in San Francisco called the Prelinger Library um, which is actually there's a kind of meta moment where chapter six is set in that library so I end up like sort of showing you directly some of the sources that I found um, but the Prelinger Library has a lot of um, kind of like weird ephemera, including the entire run of Factory magazine from for decades, basically. And so I have, yeah, some ads um, from like 1916, I think, that are directed specifically at factory owners where, and they like literally will say like, like time, we all know that time is money, you know, or like you're paying them money and they're paying you time, like making it very yeah. explicit. Yeah. But you also make the, the, the really, um, really great argument from that being like, if all of this all of the conversation that comes from that becomes about efficiency and optimizing what you can extract from that time. But it's, it's not the worker who, who benefits from that yeah. at all. But yeah. Right. Like I think um, one really interesting question to ask in the history of any sort of 
timing from Taylorism in the early 20th century to even now something like um, employee tracking software. There was one that I found that was called Staff Cop, which was amazing. <laughs> I loved um, that yeah. one. Can you, can you tell everyone a bit about Staff Cop? Staff Cop is just, yeah, it's just one of many um, employee tracking software programs that would be installed on your laptop. So if you're a remote worker um, and sort of gives someone an over, gives the person running the software an overview of everyone's productivity. It's sort of like mapped out. Um, and some of that software can do really like detailed things. Like it can log keystrokes and it can sort of like, it's like the ultimate. It's bonkers yeah. how detailed it, how yeah, detailed yeah, yeah. it is. And, and some of the language in the ads too is just really, yeah. really off. Yeah. <laughs> and like really, and you can see that like the idea of policing and productivity actually can't be separated. They're like wasting the your time. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I think like, so throughout that whole history, it's really um, interesting to just always ask the question, um, who's timing whom? Mm. And then you, and then you very quickly get to that kind of, uh, that motivation that's been behind every innovation in kind of tracking, which is that, yeah, it's like obviously wanting to get more work out of people in less time. And then it has this sinister moment where, where people start tracking themselves and trying to optimize themselves because it's just this bullshit is just so internalized that, you know, that, that quantified self movement that I was so fascinated with for, for a little while. But, yeah. but what, how that people turn that against themselves out of this kind of. Yeah. Misguided idea that that's worth or value or... Um... Yeah. I was morbidly fascinated by how old that was. Like, mm. I... One, mm. of the, one of the librarians at the Pellinger Library knew that I was working on this project and he brought out this book from the 1920s called Increasing... 1920s. <laughs> Increasing Personal Efficiency. Um, and it's by this guy who's so obsessed with Taylorism that he wants to apply it... He wants to find a way to apply it to, like, your being <laughs> as a person. Um, and he has this amazing, completely unscientific map of, which is in the book, of efficient weather zones in the U.S. And it's like, and then, like, I don't know what that's based on. And then he's like, at the bottom, it's like, note that all of the best universities are in the high, most highly efficient weather zones. But, um, but yeah, he, you know, he's like, are you, are you like thinking in the most efficient way possible? And there's like speed reading tests in the book. Um, and all of these ways to shave seconds off tasks that you do every day, like brushing your hair and putting on pants. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, but it's also has a moral um, sort of yeah. valence to it, where it's like it's it's immoral to not do this in the most efficient way. And I was unsurprised that he mentions eugenics in it because, especially in the 1920s, like that obsession with eugenics, like really dove or uh, with efficiency, really dovetailed with eugenics, like this mm -hmm. idea of a. Uh, of a perfect human machine that would be perfectly adapted to like the industrial capitalist world. Yeah, but it, but it is everywhere. You, you just made me think like before mentioning eugenics, by the way, <laughs> not at that point. Yeah. But um, one of the moments that I found most touching in the book too is where you include the report oh, the card, report that, card. You know, yeah. this childhood report card that you made for your parents to grade me, to grade you on, on being a good girl. Yeah. And, and it, <laughs> You know, like I think, I think you just look at that, and everyone has this moment where you just kind of go, "Oh, sweet," <laughs> but also it me. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was totally yeah. that kid too. Yeah. Um, and and you just get this this wonderful response from from your parents too, who've obviously seen this thing and gone, "Oh no." <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, but, and their, their advice is like, dance more, laugh Yeah, or more. they're like, draw more pictures. Yeah, <laughs> like they just try to like be like, play it off. Like that's not really disturbing. Um, yeah, I have... I but it have says that, something about the, the, you know, this stuff being in the air that we breathe when yeah. a kid thinks like that. I think that, yeah, I think part of the reason I put that in there, I mean, first of all, it's just like very surreal. But second of all, I think I was trying to um, like cut the reader some slack or something, yeah. or maybe myself because... Like, you know, I think th there's something that really bothers me about, um, like, a certain type of uh, rhetoric where it's, like, you, sh you should learn to not want to be productive all the time, but it's, but even that sounds, like, but it's also punitive like somehow. Yeah. yeah. Like, um, and I think I put that in there to just be, like, look, like, we all, or many of us came up in this atmosphere. Like, it's mm -hmm. going to take a lot to think differently from this or just, like, acknowledge that, like, from the from the time you were in school, you were being taught to be competitive. Yeah. 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 Um, which, which is a really 
beautiful way of doing it to kind of say like you know it's not so much we're complicit but but it to separate yourself from the culture into which you're born is is not an easy task um i read this i I read somebody else writing about the book the other day i think an australian writer who referred to who referred to this in another book as as being time activism which i thought was such a wonderful phrase that i wanted to to ask you about it um this idea of being of, of well, I guess it ties in with that, with trying to reframe and rethink these things that, that damage us. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, there's definitely, I, th- I think I was trying to find, like, a, a different, something different from, like, t- the advice to get, like, more out of your time without acknowledging these larger structural things mm. about why someone might not feel like they have time. I mean, like, women, that's the most... Uh, obvious example is like I read um, a time management book that was aimed at women that never addressed like why the question of why women are expected to do more work both at on the job and in the household Um, and so I I think you know for me like time activism would mean that sort of like starting to move in that direction which makes it really to me the same thing as like things tools that we've had for a long time like um, labor organizing is time activism right that's like um, I, even like literally, if you look at um, how many strikes have been touched off by um, shortening, some, like something like shortening the lunch hour, like it is about time, you know, mm. um, or how much you're getting paid for your time, which would allow you to not work as much, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that, and the book too, it, in in that sense, is really interested in how else do we conceptualize time? What other ways do we have to think about it, or hold on to it, or? or kind of understand ourselves in time in a way that isn't extractive and, and isn't about this kind of, you know, dollar value. Yeah, and non-transactional also, mm-hmm. I think. Like, I, I have this part in the middle of the book where I'm describing... Um, so, actually, the wife of the person that I went on that really long walk with in the mountains, um, she uh, has this amazing garden, and I, I described this moment where she was, like, trying to give me lettuce because you need to take the, uh, the outer leaves off to have it keep growing in a certain way. And that I had a really hard time wrapping my head around the fact that, that if she gave me something, we would both have more. Yep. And it made me so <laughs> sad, <laughs> like how hard that was for me to even just conceptualize. Um, but I think I'm really interested in those kind of like non-transactional ways of thinking about time. I've been really inspired lately, actually. I mean, I don't know if this is really on topic, but the mm. writer's strike in Hollywood, um, like that's obviously um, time consuming, right? Yeah. For everyone who's participating in that. But there's also, you know, that's also obviously what's needed in order to have their work not be further devalued. Um, but also there's like, I mean, at least from what I've been seeing, there's like a s- surprising amount of just like joy and conviviality, like on the picket line, like, like it's a different kind of time. Um, yeah. It's a very like communal time. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think you also have an argument in there that art, art making and even an artistic engagement with the world is, is a different way to think about time too, because you have to step out of those structures and you have to pay attention and look closely and think deeply and do stuff that looks like nothing. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's actually quite similar to something that I mentioned at the end of How to Do Nothing, which is Do Nothing Farming. Um, you know, like that, uh, the, there's a Japanese farmer who came up with this way of farming that requires far less labor, less, um, no pesticide, no artificial pesticides. Um, and it's just, it looks like you're doing less, but it's the, but he developed that system by being incredibly observant of how like the, the insects and the plants are all interacting. And he also knew how to do everything at the exact right time. Mm. Um, so it's like that, that acknowledgement that every moment is not the same, which is like, you know, that there's a right time to do this and there's a right time to do this, that, that hours aren't these, yeah, these sort of like fungible things that that are interchangeable. And uh, there's an irony in that when I start, when I started writing the book, I was so daunted by the scope of it that I wrote myself a very industrial sounding timetable (laughs) where it was like, I'm going to, somehow I allotted myself the exact same amount of time for each chapter and then I started missing all my deadlines and getting <laughs> concerned because um, I hadn't yet learned the lesson of my own book. But it's like, I don't know why, in retrospect, it's like, I don't know why I, I didn't acknowledge the fact that like 
me a year a year into writing the book is not the same as me at the beginning. Mm. And it's also possibly one of the biggest topics that there is yeah. in existence. Yeah, but, yeah, <laughs> totally. But you know, it's like the it's like why like why did I I, I, I even conceived of my own labor of writing the book in yeah. an industrial way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that's how we prove that we're worthy and that yeah. we're actually doing the work. Yeah. There's a wonderful moment early on too where you, uh, I think it's in the introduction where you're talking about that, you know, I think you started writing this book in late 2019 or, or in 2020. and Yeah, yeah. Very, very late in the time before, um, yeah. <laughs> as I like to call it now. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly everything changes and our relationship to time changes too. Um, and thinking, thinking about that as you're kind of putting the introduction together, you say something like... Um, if anything good can come of this, then, then surely it's the sowing of more doubt mm-hmm. about these structures that have been a part of our lives and that we have had to find other ways to, to do without. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, I really value interruption on both of small, very small and a very large scale and on an individual scale and a communal scale. So, um, I mean, I, I think a lot of the art, for example, that I that I talk about and how to do nothing kind of has that effect, right? It like defamiliarizes something mm. even just briefly. And for me, sometimes that's been life-changing. Like I talked about the John Cage performance that I went to that completely permanently changed the way that I hear everything. Um, and so often those are moments, yeah, of destabilization. Um, yeah. Sometimes, you know, they are the result of something terrible, like some kind of loss. Other times I think it's just something being different. And so I, I did, um, I do value the fact that I wrote the book in the middle of a really long interruption um, where it, there were all of these things that were kind of thrown up into the air um, and specifically questions about ways that we were spending our time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And to me, that, that idea of interruption too and, and the art, it's, it's one of the things that I like most about, about your writing in, in both books, that you have this way of thinking through art as well as thinking through nature and, and thinking through, you know, the, these political tomes that, that you're reading that kind of you always have these different paths through through the material and, and the engagement with other people's art I, I, I found particularly, um, it, it's very beautiful um, and, and really kind of leavens a lot of what, what you're writing too and some, this very generous act to bring in so many other people's ideas and ways of working with this material. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, um, that's yeah. one of those questions that doesn't have a question mark. <laughs> no, at the end I, of it. that's um, I I I think you know because my background is largely mm. in art and I taught art for eight years um, to college students. It's just one of the things that I reach for when I'm trying to demonstrate something. But I think I also I mean I I have a lot of respect for the things that can't be said in words um, or can only be gestured at by words. And one of the most inspiring things that I encountered that I, early on when I was writing the book that I ended up referencing um, in the book is this documentary called Time um, by Garrett Bradley. And it's about a prison activist. And it follows her for quite some time actually. Um, and it, it's, it's really hard to describe, but it's, it's, there's kind of two timelines in the documentary. Mm. There's one of her like present day, you know, um, like speaking and doing activism while her husband is incarcerated, um, and then, and her, at that point, grown children are accompanying her, and then it's inter, interwoven with VHS tapes of her when she was much younger, and the her children are basically babies, um, and her husband is still incarcerated in those, and so it's like, it makes time so concrete, like, um, and there's these amazing, it's visual, right, it's like there's directorial mm. things that she does that um, you know, like showing uh, this activist waiting, um, like calling the court, um, waiting for information and just sitting by the phone and waiting and then like an image of clouds going by. And like that kind of like um, that juxtaposition is like there's something I, I, I don't think that could be written. Yeah. Um, and I was so I was I was so gratified that she let me use those stills in the book um, mm-hmm. because I really don't I mean, I could describe them, but I think seeing them, it's different. Yeah, yeah. And then it does sort of, um, I think too, it gives different minds a different way into the material too, yeah. in, a, in a way that's, that's really sort of expansive too. 
Well, having asked two questions without question marks at the end of them, um, <laughs> I'm going to turn over to you guys because we do have time to ask questions of Jenny, and we've got the we've got roving mics with our ushers. So if anyone has a question, please wave, and a microphone will make its way to you. Um, <laughs> I think we've got one right down the front to begin with, which is always exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Jenny, I used to work at a bookshop and I always used to get in trouble because I shelved um, the How to Do Nothing stock in Culture and Ideas and it was supposed to be in self-help. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I would, I would have fights with my managers and everyone said, no, you just have to do what's on the sticker and that was frustrating because if they read the book, that, that would... Really I said put it in both places. <laughs> That's a good idea too. Yeah. I'd still get in trouble, I think. But, um, <laughs> and I just wondered, uh, as someone who I assume probably doesn't um, think of her work in that way, do you kind of struggle with the way that other people define what you do um, or what your work is trying to say as well? Yeah, um, a little bit. Also, that's just reminding me of my friend told me that he was at Green Apple Books in San Francisco and that he found how, uh, he found how to do nothing in personal development, which is kind of like self-help and was like kind of like loudly remarking about it. And the bookseller there was like, yeah, I know, like, I just don't really know where to put it. Um, and then they both decided to put it in social science. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Uh, and I, I actually, and I've seen it, I've also seen it in, like, religion and spirituality. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, I've seen it in, like, the sort of, like, nature writing, like, section. Um, and, like, I guess, like, I, I maybe I feel just more, like, I'm kind of gratified that it's a book that you kind of can't decide where to put it. Mm -hmm. um, and I also, I mean, I, yeah, I feel like, it was a little bit jarring the first time around, but now I think I've like learned to accept that you know I have a certain amount of control over what I do. Um, my this book actually, I was I was shocked at what my editor let me get away with. So the actual <laughs> text of the book, I feel like, is pretty pristine in terms of like what I wanted. And then you know, marketing is a whole other story. I did um, refuse to do TikTok style videos. Um, as part of promotion for the book, I was like, I will not do that. But that's very good. Um, but I think like I've had some. Um, I as a reader have had some experiences where something was marketed in a certain way, um, and then I like um, Marie Kondo's book, which is marketed as self help, and people describe it as being about minimalism, which I don't think it is. <laughs> and then and I didn't read it for a really long time because it was like, ah, oh, Marie Kondo, you know, she wants to get rid of all your books, um, and. <laughs> Uh, and then I read it and I was like, this book is about like animism. Like, I don't know if anyone here has read it, but like, it's not what you think it is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it has to be marketed a certain way and she has to be marketed a certain way. But it's like, actually what she's describing is like a very anti-consumerist animist relationship to objects, which is completely incredible. So I think maybe because I've had that experience, I kind of have to trust that others who are encountering it in a certain framing will kind of like find out for themselves what it really is, yeah. I feel like if it's self-help, it's the smartest self-help book I've ever read. Well, that, I mean, that's the other thing. Like, I think a lot about the phrase self-help, and, I mean, in both, both of my books, like, I have a very um, different conception of the self than yeah. the one that is assumed in something like self-help. Um, and once you assume that, there is no such thing as self-help anymore. There's just, like, help or um, like re readjustment yeah. of oneself to one's surroundings or other people. And so I think like actually the impulse to want to buy self-help is very understandable and should be empathized with. And mm -hmm. I'm like happy to meet someone like where they are with that. Yeah. yeah. So we had a, another question in the middle there. Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, I haven't read the time book yet and you might touch on this, but um, the lesson I learned from How to Do Nothing is to not spend too much time on Instagram. But what I do appreciate about your feed is Skeptical Rock. Oh. <laughs> and I was wondering whether Skeptical Rock, which is, for people who don't know Jenny's um, feed, it just pops up all the time. There's a rock that she visits and it has an expression which is utterly sceptical. Can, can you do the expression? <laughs> Yeah, it, it's that. And, and I'm wondering, you know, now that you've talked about the Buckeye mm -hmm. 
what was yeah. it? The, oh, the buckeye tree. Buckeye yeah. tree. Um, whether the rock, whether you're expecting it to change, whether there's, um, I know you take it, uh, images of it through yeah. the seasons, but there's this beautiful expression, you can't rush a rock, and I'm wondering in sense of time, um, yeah. what, what you're hoping for from Skeptical Rock. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, for those who have not seen it, the Skeptical Rock is... Um, it's a rock that I only ever see when I visit my parents, which is why it's kind of intermittent. But um, I have photos of it on my Instagram starting in 2014 um, and like maybe see it like a couple times a year. I also think about this as a weird thing, but I, I have deleted a lot of my Instagram photos except for Skeptical Rock. And so I think <laughs> of it as like erosion resistant. Like my Instagram is eroding except for Skeptical Rock. Um, but like in the caption is always just like skeptical rock spring 2020, you know, <laughs> like there's no other information. Um, and I think uh, it is still the same as it was in 20, 2014. It just has these markings on it that make it look like that kind of emoji, the like side mm. one, frowning one. Um, but I think it, because of it being a constant, it actually has made me very attentive to the changes of things that are around it. So like when the grass grows so high that you can't see its face, you know, or um, like, you know, in that part of the Bay Area, it's green only very briefly. And then it's just dry and sort of yellow the rest of the year. Um, sometimes there's cows in the background. Um, and so just it, it kind of has done that unfreezing something in time mm -hmm. for me for just this area surrounding it. I just love this idea that Skeptical Rock wants none of your bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, yeah, it's like looking off camera like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> this, this one again. Was that someone in the middle, in the middle there? Was that a gesture? Um, I wonder if you have a comment on a tension, a beautiful tension I feel when I'm reading your books, which is about the idea of individual resistance and the act of individual resistance, but almost at the same time acknowledging that that's going to be swept away if it isn't done communally. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, as always, you resist giving a straight answer, which I very much appreciate it. But do you have something to say about how we sort of jump between the two or bridge the two? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's um, this phenomenon that I've noticed uh, in the past where there's something that some kind of thing that I can't think through and it really bothers me and I think that it's a problem that I can't solve it and then I realize that that's like the most generative interesting question like that's actually a good thing and so one of those which I know is not unique to me like I think many people have kind of struggled with this is like the the relationship between the individual and the structural right like mm -hmm. On the one hand, if you put too much emphasis on individual agency, then you could very easily end up in cruel optimism, which is like just uh, you know positive thinking or something like that, or like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, but then if you go too far in the other direction of like everything being completely structurally determined, then then the people, individuals in that kind of matrix don't have any agency, and that can be equally cruel in a way. Um, yeah, and then you go straight to we're all fucked. Yeah. yeah, and also like then my decisions don't matter because everything about what I do is determined by my circumstances. And so um, I really try to hold in my mind, like it's hard, right? But I try to hold in my mind this, idea, this notion of individuals who have um, desires and regrets and ways of adapting um, uh, that are, who are alive with that, who are then embedded in this system that obviously has lots of constraints um, and hierarchies and things like that. Um, and that those things are both happening at the same time and they're informing each other um, and that that's not something to that we can or should collapse down into one or the other mm -hmm. but it's really really tempting to want to do that to, because it's it's tempting to want to yeah rest in one or the other because they, it feels so that relationship feels complicated um, but I do I, it's also something that I think about as someone who writes books um, you know like I, a book is read by an individual um, an, indiv an individual reader who can then discuss it with others. Um, but I think by the, by the nature of that and the medium, I am in a better position to kind of like speak to someone about the way that they're seeing something or the way that they're thinking about something. And then it's always been amazing and gratifying to me to hear about how that might have given someone vocabulary to then yeah. talk to other people about it. Like there's a, a chapter in this book about la languages that we use to talk about time. And language is something that you can only speak with at least one other person. Um, like, 
one of the examples that I give in that chapter is of Filipino time, which I, I asked around my family, <laughs> how late is Filipino time? Um, and the consensus was one to two hours late. Um, oh, that's very good. That's very... At least there's a rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, but then, as I mentioned, like if if there's like a some kind of like function or something or party, and everyone is on Filipino time, it's just time, you know. <laughs> so like there are like there there are these um, interesting kind of agreements about time or thinking about time as a temporal commons, um, like structures that you build in time, siesta, like um, I don't know, all kinds of things like that, where that is both about. Um, you know, individual experience of time, but in a structure with how other people are experiencing time and the agreements that you make with others. You've got you've got a wonderful example in the book too. Um, I think it's fam- familect. Oh, familect. Yeah. Yeah. Of these kind of um, languages that that develop within small groups of, of the hog. Yeah. Oh, the hog. Yeah. So that was um, there's a really amazing Atlantic article um, about familects, which are like dialects, but they're even smaller. Um, so it could be a family or a group of friends or pe- typically like people who live together or see each other a lot. Um, and this apparently accelerated quite a bit during the pandemic. Um, and the example that they give is that there's a, a, there's a household where they have a cup that is shaped like a hedgehog that's smaller than a regular cup of coffee. And so the people living in that apartment started calling it a hog of coffee. It just meant like less than <laughs> a full cup of coffee. And then amazingly, the person who wrote that article saw it, saw it and then tweeted about it. And then the person with the cup like tweeted the photo and they're like, this is the hog of coffee. Um, but yeah, if you kind of like extrapolate that to time, right? Like there are agree, like- I'm running on- a hog light. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. And it, and like all you all you really need is an agreement and actually that's what all structures of time are, are just agreements. I've got to say it's one of my particular bugbears with the languages people have for time that nobody ever says what they mean. I still take it literally even though I know better. It's very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to show up to your party at 8 if the invite says 8. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, we had another question in the front row here. Um, I haven't read either of your books, but I will now. <laughs> um, it's such an um, interesting topic, but I wondered if you addressed how the, your perception and experience of time changes as you age. Yeah. Um, I do talk about... Um, the. There's a documentary series, a British documentary series called 7-Up. Oh. I don't know if anyone here has seen it, but yeah, yeah like that kind of... Um, I, I bring that up. It's not so much... Uh, about aging, the way that I reference it, uh, so much as um, the idea that of experience and time, mm. um, how like the idea of experience and memory really work against the notion of fungible time. So like the only way to um, have the only way to have 63 years of experience is to be 63 years old, right? That's like not collapsible, <laughs> um, and um, and that that is you know, some, yeah, it sort of works against that really dehumanizing notion of someone who exists outside of time. Mm. Um, there's a, there's a, also a study, I mean, this is not related to aging, but related to this kind of experience and memory. There's a study that really floored me that I found while researching this book about how, um, about, um, what's it called, the lesser minds bias, um, which is like a bias that we have that people who are in out groups, like people we don't identify with, have a less... Um, sensitivity less, to yeah a uh, less complex emotional inner life and um and so they did the study where these participants were asked to think about a typically dehumanized group like um uh, homeless people and that and drug addicts and then they asked those same participants to wonder whether that person would like a certain vegetable and just from that question the parts of their brain that are associated with empathy and theory of mind lit up more um, which I interpreted as the fact that they're acknowledging that that person has desire, which means that they must have a past mm. and they must have a future that they're oriented toward. Um, and so I think that that's um, like just one example of how acknowledging that someone has years and years of experience um, is a way of working against that mm. notion of like individuals with fungible time. I also am very fortunate to be, I have like four good friends who are in their 70s um, and the way that they think about time is very, I don't necessarily write about it in the book, but I'm influenced by that. And mm. I'm very influenced by the way they think about my time because they see me as being in the middle of something and I see myself as being at the front of it. Yeah. yeah. 
Can I, can I give you a quick neuroscience answer? Because that's my particular special interest. Um, we know that a lot of our kind of felt experience of time, um, you know, the way that time dilates and, and contracts in our experience of it, it's an entirely internal um, phenomenon. And one of the things that makes time feel longer is the experience of anything new or novel. So novelty expands our sense of time. And if you think about that, when you're a kid, so much of what you encounter, you're encountering for the first time. So your brain is having to devote more energy to it and and kind of takes in more detail. And so in memory, it, it kind of expands. And one theory is that the older we get, the mm. fewer encounters with the novel on a day-to-day basis happen. So time seems to speed up mm. as a result of that, just because our brain isn't having to pay as much attention to those sort of day-to-day encounters we're not you know getting on a plane for the first time or we're not going to a cafe for the first time um you know I don't think that is a um to me that's 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 like a dry answer and I don't think it accounts for enough of the complexity but I like it as a starting place Mm. that makes a lot of sense to me yeah Um, I think that also explains why time like I time feels in retrospect, very collapsed for me from the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. Because I was we I had, had so, so little. Much less yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it accounts for, for when you're traveling and you're kind of like, ooh, yeah. ooh, ooh. And yeah, that's like right Daisy now. thing happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and sorry, we had that one more question at, at the front that I that I saw earlier and then then we're kind of running out of time. So sorry about that, everybody. Hello. Oh. Okay. So I feel like um, one of the recurring themes in your writing is your um, joy and enthusiasm surrounding bird watching. And I feel like we can't end this without really asking you, have you seen cool birds here? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. I, um, I actually, so I was in Brisbane first and I, I thought that I had evaded jet lag because I was so euphoric about the birds there that I was not realizing how awful I felt. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And everything like everything is different. Like obviously there's birds that are, you know, like lorikeets where I'm just like, you know, we don't have anything like that. But, but then there's like, even um, there we have in the Bay Area, we have American coots. And here I saw today, I saw an Australian coot and they look almost the same, except that the Australian one, like the white part of their beak was like a little bit higher, you know, or uh, there's like an egret that looks the same that I saw in Brisbane, but ours is called a great egret. And that one is called intermediate egret. (laughs) (laughs) I aspire to intermediacy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But so like nothing, like nothing is the same. And so it's been, um, yeah, I feel like I'm really like living my own kind of thesis of the idea that you don't need to go, you know, like I always say when I'm in the Bay Area, I'm like, you don't need to go to Yosemite to see like nature, you know, like I don't really draw that kind of distinction. And um, and I'm someone who's, I'm a very, I'm very into like, I don't know, city, city bird watching. Mm. Um, and just like get in more kind of becoming familiar with the with your local residents rather than treating it like you know this thing where you're gonna cross exotic species off of a list. So I've really been like living that because I um, you know the places that I've been so far I haven't had a car. So um, it's mostly been like you know walking and bus and like a ferry and I've but just with that I've seen you know like my mind is just like constantly blown. Yeah, I, I can't let you go without asking on that note if if you've seen a bin chicken yet. I just learned that people call them that <laughs> like three hours ago. So I feel really knowledgeable. Um, yeah, that was the, first, the first bird that I saw that was different, which is all of them, was a noisy miner. Oh, yeah. Um, and then I saw, bin, that's so mean, bin chicken. <laughs> <laughs> well, also it's funny because, you know, in the U.S., like ibises are like, you know, like that's like. Oh, really I, think they're, a, I think they're the most amazing yeah. birds. They look, yeah. they look like dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, or Muppets. I haven't decided yet, but, but yeah. they're terrifying beasts just yeah. hanging out in your just bed. Just walking around. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, I think my favorite that I've seen so far is, um, this is also in, in Brisbane. I've, I've only been here for a day, so I'm sure. <laughs> um, uh, a I'm sure brush. Melbourne's got great birds too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, a brush stone curlew. Ooh. Um, no, stone curlew is definitely like, it looks like, um, if you've read How to Do Nothing, you know that I'm obsessed with night herons, and it has the same, it's like a, 
this weird kind of football-shaped bird, and it just stands there. Oh, how wonderful. Um, and someone uh, in Brisbane told me that sometimes they stare at themselves, their reflections for long periods of time, <laughs> um, which I guess I would too if I looked that fabulous. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Brisbane does have incredibly large brush turkeys. That was my takeaway from the last Yeah. Oh, I saw a brush turkey when I was in Brisbane. Yeah, also amazing. They're yeah. all amazing, yeah. Sorry, I've completely derailed everything, <laughs> but we, we are out of, out of time too. I forgot to mention earlier that um, after the session, um, Jenny will be signing books up the back. Our, our event bookseller is Sun Bookshop. They've very generously set themselves up at the back there where you too can buy your own beautiful copy of, of Saving Time and get Jenny to sign it too. Wonderful. Um, thank you all so much for being here. Thank, thank you, you so much. Jenny, this has yeah. been really wonderful. You've been listening to Fiona Wright in conversation with Jenny O'Dell, recorded on Monday the 22nd of May 2023 at the Wheeler Centre as part of the World of Words series. The event was supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.